Madness in great ones must not unwatched go. It's scary. It's scary to see someone dealing with a mental episode. Remember Kanye West when he went to the offices of TMZ? That video there where he's screaming back and, you know, across a room with uh, Van Lathan about uh, things he said in the past about black people and slavery being a choice? Remember when he was running for president and started talking about his wife and when she got an abortion and why and how he almost got aborted as a child? That was scary. Now, when a homeless person is talking nonsense, it's also sad. But it's not surprising. It's a different tragedy on its own. When a genius is talking crazy, that's scary. It's awkward. Everyone looks around and it's, it's weird. It's odd. No one knows how to react to that. It's even terrifying if that genius is your father. I'm Sam Logan, and you're listening to the podcast, The Story Is. The podcast where we talk about the past, the present, and the personal. In this episode, we're starting a new series about the challenge of playing Hamlet. The real life and the stage colliding. This episode is going to also focus on the importance of mental health. The role of Hamlet is a unique challenge in the acting world. Actor Kevin Schofield, also a friend of mine who's also a uh, podcaster in his own right as well, uh, does the, the podcast Potomania along with me, said, it is a, it's like climbing a mountain. Even if there's a bigger one out there, climbing it will seem infinitely more attainable after conquering the monster that is Hamlet. Michael Pennington said, Hamlet has one foot in the medieval world and one in the modern world. Richard Eyre said, The male side of himself, of Hamlet, has to get rid of the feminine, the man of action versus the thinker and the feeler. Another challenge is being memorable. There's a line that's said by the ghost of Hamlet's father, Remember me. Playing Hamlet, you feel the need to set yourself apart from all others. Also, the phrase, it hath made me mad. There's also a mental challenge to playing crazy. The role is mentally taxing because you are playing someone who is depressed. According to Dr. A.B. Shaw, in an article titled Depressive Illness Delayed Hamlet's Revenge, he makes the case for Hamlet being depressed. Hamlet is a creature of Shakespeare's imagination, Shaw says. Probably drawn from several sources, he is not an actual patient. Therefore, clinical diagnosis must be tentative. But there is good evidence in the play for depressive illness. Depressive illness is characterized by low mood, anhedonia, negative beliefs, and reduced energy. Hamlet actually calls himself melancholic, and the very first speech he makes in the play is devoted to a public statement of his melancholy. But I have that within which passes show. But these, but the trapping and the suits of woe. He speaks in Anhedonia at length, 
to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, saying that he has lost all his mirth and that man does not delight him. How weary, stale, and flat and unprofitable seem to me all the uses of this world. He frequently expresses negative beliefs and pessimism. Now, I also got input from actors who played the role. They agreed that depression is part of Hamlet's disposition. I had thought Hamlet might be suffering from PTSD, but those who have played the melancholy Dane moved me in another direction. Kevin Schofield on Hamlet said, Based on the symptoms, I'd say it's iffy on PTSD. Maybe borderline. There is not a specific moment or event that is staying with him. I mean, his dad dies and he's grieving and angry at his mom and Claudius, and there isn't a moment he is fixated on until he meets the ghost. He has many symptoms, withdrawn, irritable, hyperarousal or feeling jumpy, depression, and guilt. But he doesn't necessarily have flashbacks or repress and avoid anything triggering. If anything, he charges into the triggering moments, depressed, definitely though. Another actor that I asked about, Stanley Spanger, both actor and a director, who's very familiar with the play Hamlet, said, Depression covers a lot of territory, so it applies in some measure. He was in shock because of his father's death, and his mother's sudden marriage makes it bizarre and surreal. What does it mean? Why did it happen? So there's PTSD, too, yes. He rages inwardly over it, and outwardly. Nobody seems to think anything odd. But Elizabethan plays often hide the truth in plain sight. Maybe nobody objects because they're corrupted, and then he puts on an antique disposition. So it's tough to separate his feigning madness from the real. Full-time job separating that out. So true. Then William Brown, also an actor who played Hamlet, and is also uh, currently working with the uh, uh, his company, uh, Prospective Theater, at the Pear Theater here in the Bay Area, said, I do not think he is mad. I think that's a put-on. However, that does not mean he doesn't suffer from other mental issues. Depression? Certainly. Another actor who played Hamlet, John Barrymore, was no stranger to mental issues. In fact, in 1901, his father suffered a mental breakdown on stage as a result of tertiary syphilis. On March 28, 1901, Maurice Barrymore was performing at the Lion Palace Theater in New York when he suddenly departed from his monologue and shocked the audience with what was described as a blasphemous attack on the Jews, and a rant of such emotional pitch that tears rolled down his face. After further erratic behavior, Barrymore was committed to Bellevue Hospital by a court order obtained by his son, John Barrymore. Maurice was later transferred to a private institution, Amityville, Long Island, where he suffered a rapid descent into madness. The Encyclopedia of World Biography 
states that Barrymore was constantly haunted by the bright and dark spell of his father. And his close friend Gene Fowler reported that the bleak overtone of this breaking of his parents' reason never quite died away in Barrymore's mind, and he was haunted by fears that he would suffer the same fate. In mid-1910, Barrymore met socialite Catherine Corey Harris, and the couple married in September. Harris's father objected to the relationship and refused to attend the wedding. Shortly after the ceremony, the dictator went on tour, and Harris was given a small role in the play that Barrymore was in. According to Peters, Barrymore began to think of his marriage as a bus accident. Film critic Hollis Alpert wrote that, within a week of the wedding, Catherine was complaining that she saw her husband too infrequently. Barrymore's increasing dependence on alcohol also caused marital problems, and he explained that unhappiness increased the drink, and drink increased the unhappiness. Barrymore suffers a breakdown years before playing Hamlet. His first Shakespearean performance was playing Richard III. It was a success, both critically and financially, but it closed after only 31 performances because Barrymore collapsed, suffering a nervous breakdown. He had been working constantly, appearing on stage in the, at night while planning or rehearsing the next production during the day. And by the time he appeared as Richard III, he was spending his daytimes filming Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He spent six weeks recuperating under the help of his father's friend, wrestler William Muldoon, who ran a sanitarium. Now, it wasn't only just his workload that caused him problems. He also was having an affair with Michael Strange. Now, Michael Strange is a pseudonym for Blanche Marie Louise Ulrich, an American writer and performer who produced poetry and plays and acted on stage and did readings for radio. In 1914, in a sudden and unprecedented inspiration, she began writing poems, many of them showing the influence of Walt Whitman. She published her collection, Miscellaneous Poems, in 1916, under the name Michael Strange, and used that name for all her published and stage work thereafter. A volume titled, simply, Poems, followed in 1919. In 1918, she adapted Leo Tolstoy's The Living Corpse, which was produced successfully on Broadway, with John Barrymore, as the lead. As she described her first impression of Barrymore in her autobiography, Who Tells Me True? Here he was, bowing and smiling, looking very slim and nervously poetic, with grayish-green hazel eyes of immense fascination, because they seemed to mirror back oneself in flattering, mischievous terms. He looked elfin and forsaken, an intriguing combination, but very highly strung, too, his walk slanted oblique, seemed to say that his clothes irked his skin. Michael could not get him out of her mind, and her husband returned. It was obvious that her marriage was over. Now, the affair would lead to Barrymore and Michael Strange getting married, but in the meantime, it was quite a scandal. And I'm guessing that added to Barrymore's anxiety that led to his breakdown, playing Richard III. We get more into the depth of his relationship with Michael Strange and the conditions 
at which his breakdown happened, playing Richard. In a book that I thoroughly enjoyed, that I recommend if you're interested in John Barrymore's stage performances and his life, it is called John Barrymore, Shakespearean Actor. We're going to turn to that book for some more insight into him and his breakdown. Playing Richard III, a character in which he's practically in every scene of that play, there was an added strain. The book describes, added to the strain of Barrymore's performance was his tempestuous relationship with Michael Strange. Their affair was characterized by mutual artistic encouragement, but also by an intense possessiveness and jealousy that intensified the stress brought on by months of overwork. Michael Strange remembered that the evening of his collapse, as Barrymore made up for Richard, he had engaged in a brilliantly inquisitorial display, during which unsavory acts had been unearthed about my conduct. Almost inevitably, the cumulative effects of Barrymore's driving himself physically and emotionally over a period of time took their toll. If there was a tragedy in his short run of Richard III, Margaret Carrington commented years later, it was, better, it was because a man of his temperament and talent could not physically sustain so high a standard as he achieved in his performance under the pressure of influence surrounding him at the time. His performances were, were electrifying, as well as being a demonstration of demonic talent used at its highest pitch. Years later, Robert Edmund Jones looked back upon Barrymore's nervous collapse, commenting that it was sheer energy of his mind that drove him to the edge of unreason. I remember seeing a performance of Richard III in which he gave so much, revealed so much, that I had said to myself, this can't last. Something is going to happen. It's excessive. It's abnormal. It isn't human to drive yourself like that. And yet, do you know when you are possessed by a thing or by an idea or by an emotion, while you're under the spell of it, you can live a life that is utterly abnormal, quite simply, as if it were utterly normal. This heightened world can be your world from the time being, and you can exist in it, and are fed by it, and you are under no strain at all. And then, all at once, for no reason, the bottom drops out, everything drops away, and nothing is left. Those were the conditions in which John Barrymore had his nervous breakdown. If you remember, Kevin Schofield described the role of Hamlet like climbing a mountain. And Barrymore's climb up the mountain Hamlet involved not only just learning a bunch of lines, it was also the burden of financial success. Barrymore's production partners needed a hit. The previous season had had some flops, one that was written by John Barrymore's wife, Michael Strange, and was indeed starring him, that did not succeed. There was also a disastrous production of Macbeth starring Lionel Barrymore. That also was not a success. The theater company was needing a hit. It needed money. It needed its next show to be an unprecedented success. If you keep in mind not only those two failures, but also the fact that his producing partner 
was forced to refund more than $35,000 to ticket holders when Barrymore quit his production of Richard III. Their theater company needed a hit badly. So John Barrymore got everyone together. And in order to save the, financially save their production company in the theater, in November 16, 1922, at the Sam H. Harris Theater, they presented Hamlet. Now John Barrymore had to get past his own demons. His breakdown, the booze, the scandal of his affair to his now married wife, Michael Strange. Barrymore was doing a play about being haunted by a father. A play about mental illness. And a play about forbidden love. He took all of this with him on stage. And what happened? Barrymore's portrayal is described as a colloquial, restrained, yet forceful and startlingly clear. It is said to have been electrifying the audience and moved critics to proclaim him as one of the greatest Hamlets seen in New York. He is described as eschewing the genteel, idealized sweet prince of the 19th century tradition, imbuing his character with danger and sexuality. His impersonation, proclaimed Arthur Hornblow in Theater Magazine, was alive with virility and genius. John Barrymore would play Hamlet 101 times. He would take a break and then take his own production to London, where it also met success in an area where rarely Americans succeeded. James Agate, Dean of London Critics, found his portrayal to be nearer to Shakespeare's whole creation than any other I've seen. His version of Hamlet was much admired by actors who would, in the future, embody Hamlet as well in their own success. John Gilgood and Laurence Olivier, who recalled that everything about him was exciting. He was athletic, he had charisma, and to my young mind, he played the part to perfection. When asked about who the best Hamlet was, Orson Welles said in 1963 that Barrymore was the best Hamlet he had seen, describing the character as not such princely. He was a man of genius who happened to be a prince, and he was tender and virile and witty and dangerous. John Barrymore triumphs, despite all the so many obstacles in his way, both personally and the role itself. But how does this triumph happen? It doesn't happen unless John Barrymore gets help. It doesn't happen unless he takes the time to recover. We get the other picture, or the complete picture of his recovery, when we return to the book, John Barrymore, Shakespearean Actor, when it describes his recovery. Following his breakdown, it says, Barrymore remained in seclusion at his home in the city through the weekend. On Tuesday, April 6th, he departed for a sanitarium near White Plains, run by his father's old friend, William Muldoon, a former wrestling champion who had played Charles to Maurice Barrymore's Orlando in As You Like It. At Muldoon's, he was placed into a strict regimen. He was awakened at dawn, took a cold shower, and spent time in a gymnasium tossing a medicine ball with the ex-wrestler. 
At breakfast, he was allowed a two-hour rest. A brisk five-mile walk, and what, and was a brisk five-mile walk was highlighted of the afternoon program. Smoking and drinking were strictly prohibited, and Muldoon managed to foil any attempts to smuggle in bathtub liquor, finally placing the telephone off limits. A week after his arrival, Barrymore wrote to his friend John J. Chapman, an essayist and Shakespeare scholar, whose advice he had solicited while preparing for his Shakespearean debut. He writes, I know you must think me most damnably gauche not to have answered your delightful letter soon than this, but I have been in such a maelstrom of labor, gern nurtured by exhaustion, that I have put off everything. Like some swimmer in the Atlantic Ocean might say, I'll put off telephoning till I land. I have landed at, at last, more or less, on my back. As playing that dynamically ruthless old buck, referring to Richard III, eight times a week for all one is worth, after being pretty much all in, anyway, was like trying to break ten seconds flat in the hundred-yard dash after walking up a long hill. I loved every word of your letter, and what is more, it helped me like the devil as I believed firmly everything you said. Richard is a melodrama, and all melodrama, especially of the pageant-quality background, ought to gallop along like a mad stallion. I was new at the Shakespearean game, and was watching myself instead of the sweep of the thing. I wish you could have been on the sidelines before, to yell at them, You're all dying on your feet! I'll do it again sometime. He is enormous fun as he is utterly unequivocal or sentimental or good to his mother or noble, or sweet or sincere, or romantic, or any of the god-awful things actors have to be as a rule. I suppose that is the reason they are potential murderers off the stage. On May 15th, Barrymore, judged by Muldoon to be sufficiently recovered after six weeks of rest, returned to New York. His producer Hopkins, still hopeful that he might resume the role, greeted his return optimistically. But Barrymore, pleading exhaustion, quickly dashed his hopes. Soon afterward, he left on an extended vacation with Michael Strange. That's right. John Barrymore had an opportunity. He had a chance to return to the role and, no doubt, make more money. But he wouldn't do it at the cost of his own health. Madness and great ones must not unwatched go. Whether it's your uncle or whether it's Uncle Cracker, whether it's Britney Spears, Kanye West, or someone you personally know, these people need help and should be able to receive it instead of being the object of mockery scorn, or the subject of a tabloid. The lesson is, take time to rest and recover, whether you're a celebrity or just an ordinary person. Don't let madness or exhaustion go untreated.
Thanks for listening. Now it's time for your favorite part of the episode, where I cite my sources. This episode's sources came from John Barrymore, Shakespearean actor, written by Michael A. Morrison, and also from the website, well, I got some of my rough uh, outlined facts from Wikipedia, and I also got some help from my John Barrymore facts from cinecollege.net and shakespeare.com for all of my coverage about John Barrymore. Now, let's find out what's happening on the next episode. Next time, Richard Burton takes on the role of Hamlet. He goes to Broadway, a very public performance, when his life is a very public scandal. That's next time. Until then, I'm Sam Logan. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Thank you.